0: so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of New Books Now uh, podcast. I'm Matthew Garnier, and today I'm talking with... uh, Rebecca L. Stein, about her new book, Screenshots, State Violence on Camera in Israel and Palestine, published by Stanford University Press. She's an associate professor of cultural anthropology at Duke University. So welcome, Rebecca. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Matthew. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Now, I really loved this book. I just found it such a riveting account of how digital photographic technologies integrate novel image-making practices in the political toolboxes of multiple actors in Israel-Palestine, and specifically how they give rise to new politics, social discourses, and everyday practices. Um, Now, I understand... This book is the second in a multi-book project about the ways that new communication technologies are mediating the everyday Israeli relationship to its military occupation. Can you start by telling me how "Screenshots" fits into this project, and what kinds of questions um, sort of emerged from your experience on the ground and in the field? Sure, thank you,
1: and again, thank you for the invitation to to um, to join this uh, podcast series. Um, this is my second book um, in a. Decade plus meditation on the question of how um, new media technologies change political playing fields in Israel and Palestine, with a particular focus on uh, the Israeli military occupation. And I, um, as someone teaching a lot of undergraduates right now, I know I need to now pause and say something about what that is for readers or listeners who aren't as familiar with this political context. I'm talking about. The Israeli military occupation of the Palestinian territories, Israel became a military occupier in 1967. Um, They occupied um, the West Bank, including Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip. There were other territories occupied as well. But when we speak of occupied Palestinian territories, we are speaking of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. This occupation has been going on since 1967 and has been expanding and normalizing ever since. So in the last decade of my work, I've been really interested in the ongoing state of this military occupation and the question of how shifts in media ecosystems change this political theater, um, change um, the Israeli experience of being um, an occupying power, the everyday Israeli experience of being an occupier, and change the experience for Palestinians living under the repressive hand of the Israeli military occupation. So what what happens when these new media technologies enter this political playing field? That's been my chief question um, for the last decade of work. Um, Before Screenshots, which came out in 2021, um, I published uh, Digital Militarism, um, Israel's Occupation in the Social Media Age. That was co-authored with Adi Kunzman, and that was also from Stanford. That book was a response to the kind of um, digital optimism, um, digital utopianism that emerged in the wake of the Arab revolts of 2010, um, um, 2011, and a a response to this moment of a kind of um, investment, particularly for players in the Middle East, but around the world in the ways in which new technologies might be sort of almost organically suited for grassroots um, pro-democracy movements. At least that was some of the initial investment, particularly internationally, in as the Arab revolts um, and uprisings unfolded, particularly viewers watching from a distance. Uh, Digital militarism, my first book was an attempt to say, wait a minute, let's let's hold back before we have such a utopian read on the politics of these new technologies. Um, and it was actually an attempt to think about social media as a toolbox for Israelis supporting the military project in the, in the occupied territories. Um, so this was a mouthful. But this first book was on the militarization of social media for is Jewish Israeli populations. This second book, screenshots, continues the meditation on how new technologies change this political playing field, but it moves particularly to cameras. And it asks the questions, what happens when these handheld cameras, eventually in the form of the smartphone camera, proliferate? And how does the proliferation of digital photographic technologies change the political experience, political lives of all these different actors and institutions in this political playing field?
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And one thing I really enjoy about the book and the question of the camera as well is the um, the way that you problematize the camera as strictly representational, right, and eventually get into questions of how these representations themselves are um, questioned, uh, vilified, um, you know, all kinds of conspiracy theories surround them, um, and which we'll get into, and the the written the richness of this multi book project is also in the fact that the story continues right it, it everything is still sort of unfolding and everything is developing and technology is advancing um, as we saw in the recent uh, war between Hamas and Israel in May two thousand twenty one which again we'll talk about a little bit later uh, about the context sort of that continues after the text um, so. Can you just set the stage for us a little bit? like who are some of the major actors in the book and how are they each using cameras?
1: Great. yeah, and I'm glad you you brought up May um, 2021 um, um, which we'll we'll be discussing um, later in this podcast. I think that you know we're, we're we're working in a moment, we're living in a moment in which the presence of the smartphone camera at the site of state violence and again, state violence, The scene of state violence is my concern in this book. I'll say more about that in a second. But we've become accustomed to anticipating cameras, smartphone cameras with, you know, um, a network capacity at the site of killings. We've become accustomed to seeing soldiers and military shoot and bodies fall in something close to real time. That is our, we've become normalized into that regime of the smartphone witness um, and we'll talk about what that meant for Palestinians um, in 2021 in a minute. But what, I, what this book tries to do is to ask, what if we return to an earlier moment? What if we return to an earlier moment when cameras were beginning to make their way in, in large numbers onto, into, into lives, into homes, into hands of various political actors in Israel and Palestine? So in many ways, this book is a, a story of digital emergence or what I call elsewhere, learning digital labor. So it takes us back to an early moment. It really begins, as does my prior book, right around 2010, but actually, in, in fact, it begins earlier uh, with the second Intifada, which breaks out in 2000. So there's it, it, it takes us two decades back, um, and one of the questions that it asks is, how did various communities, institutions, and I'm going to say more about who those were, in this political space of military occupation. How did they manage to pull these new photographic technologies into their political toolboxes at these very, very early moments? So the constituencies that concern me in this book are the Israeli military and Israeli soldiers um, on patrol in the occupied territories, In particularly um, this book focuses on the occupied West Bank. Um, I'm interested in Jewish settler populations and and what I call Zionist conspiracy theorists, by which I mean um, pro-Zionist actors, sometimes in Israel, sometimes outside, with their cameras supporting the state project. On the other hand, we have Palestinian anti-occupation activists and Israeli and Palestinian human rights workers Starting in around 2000, all of these populations at different paces with different access to these technologies were beginning to pull these, technolo- these photographic technologies into their political toolboxes. So I think one of the bo- things this book, again, tries to think about is emergence, media emergences. Um, so it's to really, rather than tell a kind of teleological narrative, which presumes in a way the media's functionality it sort of takes us it, it uh, by which I mean rather than always focusing on the question of what's new right on the media on the media frontier which I think we tend to do when we think about dig- digitality I think our question of the digital scholar is always what happened now what happened 10 minutes ago this book pauses to, to go back to say let's return to the early moment early moments, early years in which these photographic technologies were just beginning to be pulled into the toolboxes of the human rights worker, Israeli and Palestinian, of the Palestinian anti-occupation activist, of the Jewish settler, of the soldier on patrol. What did it look like in those early years of attempting to what I call learn digital labor, attempting to use these tools as political tools? And of course that's the story of the book is how were these tools pulled into these political toolboxes um, and, and, and what resulted. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And let let me, let me also just provide a a one-liner, which we may want to follow up on Matthew, which is that this book is interested in something that I call both in the book, but also in other writings I've done, the digital promise. And what the digital promise is, is this kind, is this fantasy Uh, I'll propose this, this ostensible promise that these new photographic technologies with their capacity to see sharper and clearer and to circulate more rapidly, you know, to global audiences, to, to offer these scenes of state violence in real time, this dream that, 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 that technological innovation is coextensive with the realization of certain kinds of political dreams certain kinds of political dreams. So I'm, I'm tracking this ostensible digital promise in the hands of all these actors. And I'm interested in what this promise looked like for all these actors, the promise that their respective political dreams could be realized with these cameras. And equally crucially, I'm interested in how this promise tends to break down. So it's a it's a chronicle of the digital promise and the, and the digital breakdown, the breakdown of the promise in the hands of all these uh, various actors.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. I mean, I, this makes me think a lot about um, this assumption, like you say, this assumption we have that digital technologies are just sort of like fall into our life and their functions sort of rearrange everything. and. Y- and yeah we see we i see it across the literature this idea of the that utopian promise right the potentiality of it to sort of do good um while overlooking the very broad histories by which these technologies are what i call socialized into these contexts right And it it takes time for these actors to sort of figure out what to do with them, how to use them in their sort of everyday lives, what their potentials are, what their drawbacks are. And I think this is one thing the book really does well, is that question of, I mean, the history of the technology in Israel-Palestine, but also the history of Israel-Palestine sort of more broadly. And, you know, history here, uh, you identify history in the book as an important part of the story. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Um, And I, yes, I want to, and I want to return to your point about this, um, you know, this proposition that we need to spend time thinking about how technologies are integrated into social worlds. That's really what the book is doing. It's a meditation on the integration of technologies into these social and political worlds. So I, as I said, the book really starts with the second Palestinian uprising in 2000. um, And it, it ends um, around 2014, 2016. Um although concludes with some thoughts about the very moment in which I was concluding the book, which was the black the Global Black Lives Matter protests. Um, but one of the things I'm interested in, and I can only talk about this briefly here, is is how political histories and technological histories run alongside each other um, in the Israeli-Palestinian context. So I'm interested in in changes in the landscape of occupation, of changes in the landscape of Israeli military projects. After 2000, after a second Palestinian uprising um, emerges, after a, a, a very brutal um, Israeli military crackdown on the West Bank following the outbreak of that of that uprising in 2000, you have a massive sea change in the shape of the military occupation in 2000, which will really set the terms of the next decade and a half of Israeli military rule and Israeli tactics, um, and is and and Jewish Israeli understandings of a now moribund peace process. All this is happening um, in Israel and Palestine in the in the first decade of the 21st century. So real sea change brought on by, real political sea change brought on by the outbreak of the uprising, the, the Israeli crackdown, and then... The end of the so-called Middle East peace process of the 1990s, which never was a peace process. I've written about that elsewhere. Right. But you have this real shift in the political landscape. Right. So that's happening in the political landscape. A lot more we can say about that. Um, And at the same time, you have in the media landscape. You have this unfolding and this emergence and this and this um, new proliferation of new kinds of, of digital media technologies coming onto the scene. Of course, at the time of the second Palestinian uprising, this precedes social media. But by 2008, we have YouTube coming onto the scene. So we have these, I, I'm interested in tracking um, the, polit- the evolution of the, of the political history of the occupation and the evolution of the political the political history of the media ecosystem and how they mature together. And what that co-maturation tells us about these different actors in the field. So, for example, in 2000, when Israeli soldiers were on patrol, um, cracking down brutally on the uprising in the West Bank, they were carrying very rudimentary flip phones, right? Um, very rudimentary um, cell phone cameras with them into military theaters. Um, now, this was a moment uh, prior to prior to this kind of self-evidence. Of the, of the of of witnessing practices by means of the camera it was really prior to that moment because these technologies were not were not yet prolific. But you see soldiers starting to use their cameras um, to document their own repressive practices, many of them, and also for those who for the small small population of soldiers who were serving but also opposed to the military occupation, you see them starting to use their cameras um, as protest tools. So they were taking images of repressive military actions, but but what's really important to say here is that these were early years, right? This these were this was these were years of trial and error in the practice of the of photographic witnessing, mm-hmm. right? So these these attempts to use cameras either as tools of perpetration or as tools of eyewitnessing had to go through all the. The sort of um, bumps in the road of any new media socialization. So I'm really interested in those bumps in the road. I will just, I'll remind listeners that 2004, of course, are the viral Abu Ghraib images that we're familiar with also shot. This is also pre-smartphone, right? As we know, circulated as JPEGs around the world, right? Those were images that had to be uploaded as JPEGs onto computers, circulated and sent by email before they could achieve anything like viral status, right? I think- uh, listeners are probably more familiar with that context. Well, the same is true in Israel and Palestine. There was no such thing as instantaneous photographic witnessing right? in middle- military theaters. There was an incredibly cumbersome um, infrastru- media infrastructure required to achieve anything close to virality. And that's something I'm really hoping that readers take away from this book is just a, a kind of um, a meditation on Again, this relationship between changing political infrastructures and changing media infrastructures, and how they um, and how they relate. Mm-hmm. And
2: one thing I found really interesting in uh, in the text when you were talking about that sort of co maturation, as you term it, is um, how just how. Something like that flip from camera suddenly created all kinds of crises of policy of validity uh, of uh, soldier management within the Israeli military right and that continues into this day where they weren't they weren't really sure what to do with these um, phones to the point where um, the validity of these images is now the major crisis. Uh, and so I, I find that so fascinating how that phone creates these sorts of crises that really is an interesting way of thinking about that co-maturation, right? How that these crises uh, proliferate in terms of certain kinds of policies and new kinds of practices and regulations um, and conspiracies within the IDF and within uh, 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 Israeli public uh, public opinion as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, and I I think um I yes these crises as you term it well are really central to my story, and I'll I'll just before speaking to that um point I'll just tell listeners that um this book is heavily invested in a story of perpetrators of Israeli perpetrators in that sense it's kind of not the standard ethnographic account of the occupation it's really interested in the social life of. Perpetrators with their technologies, Israeli, Jewish Israeli perpetrators with their technologies. So I have a lot of emphasis on the military. I have also a lot of emphasis on this Zionist conspiracy theory domain, which is heavily populated by settlers and pro pro Israeli uh, publics, Jewish publics um, outside of Israel. We'll get back to that in a minute, which is simply to say that, yes, I have a lot of attention to crisis. I have a lot of attention to the sense in the military of crisis. Um, and let me say a little bit more about that. The crisis is is quite simple. The crisis is that um, although um, technological uh, penetration, I can use that word, is far more advanced within um, Israeli society than it is within Palestinian society because, in large measure because of is, the, the military occupation itself, including what um, some scholars have called a digital occupation, Israeli military control of digital infrastructures, despite the fact that there's far more, there were always far more digital technologies in Jewish-Israeli hands in the decades I'm studying here, um, far more access to digital technologies. Um, Nonetheless, as cameras proliferate, begin to proliferate in Palestinian hands in the West Bank, albeit slowly, albeit constrained by the military occupation, the military watches with considerable concern. So as cameras become more common at anti-occupation protests, as cameras become more common in the hands of activists, in the hands of human rights workers, the military understands this as a considerable crisis. Um, and I've, I'm really interested in the crisis. Um, uh, I spend a lot of time talking about this crisis and how it looks at different moments. And the crisis often takes, the, takes a very standard form. And the crisis looks something like this. It looks like the, the, from the, milita- the military storyline says these images that Palestinians are shooting of Israeli state, state and settler violence are bad. Right, so I like to reduce these. I like to reduce this to a formula. These images are bad, right? And by these images are bad, the military means these Palestinian cameras are creating a public relations problem for Israel, particularly for the military. So you see camera proliferation. You see the. You begin to see the growth of Palestinian archives, visual archives of settler brutality, of soldier brutality. You start to see these archives grow. The military is watching with concern, and it is a considerable crisis. And I'm interested in tracking that crisis and particularly in tracking this proxy narrative, as I term it, whereby the images are bad, right? Whereby the phenomenon of state violence is reduced by the military time and time again to a public relations or a problem, right? So time and time again, the Israeli military and public response to any viral scene of state violence captured on camera is a lament. And the lament says, we, the Jewish Israeli public are being maligned again by the bad cameras of our foes. So rather by, of our, of our enemies, our foes, rather than it being, rather than viral images producing a kind of public conversation about state violence, it produces a lament about public relations disaster. I'm really interested in this relationship between growing Palestinian archives of state violence and growing military and Jewish public lament about the PR problem. So we see this time and time again, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this.
2: Mm-hmm. So going back then to that uh, term, digital promise, and and sort of building off this, um, you know, for us to have a digital promise for for these things to have a promise certain items have to be invested with certain kinds of value and hope right and so you know the crux of the text is looking at um multiple kinds of genres within photography so can you outline for us sort of what you know what kinds of photography are being um put into the like are being sort of produced on the ground like what are the multiple genres
1: Sure. I mean, let me let me um, let me say something about the genre of. Um, I mean, it would consolidate as a genre, right? It wasn't initially a genre; it would consolidate as a genre. But the the, the this um, the 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 scene of the amateur witness, the amateur Palestinian smartphone witness, producing a a, a very tactile scene of horror. Right, so this this so I spend a lot of time thinking about again these early years when Palis- Palestinians were beginning to have more in, living under occupation, where had more and more access to cameras. we starting to produce greater numbers of um, short films of attacks by settlers. These could be organized attacks coming into communities. They could be mass settlers coming in to try to seize Palestinian land. These could be soldier assaults. Um, um, these could be soldier shootings at a demonstration. Right. In the early years of these cameras, um, before, before they were, um, you know, again we're talking about we're talking about around 2008, 2010. Um, what was typically produced by Palestinian camera operators, as um, as for as for as for, pal- as for camera operators uh, adjusting to these technologies around the world, were very jerky um, uh, amateur images which were heavily inscribed visually with the marks of amateurism. So what am I talking about? we we are all, we're all familiar with this footage, right? It's footage produced by people on the run. It's footage produced by people in the middle of an assault. It's footage produced by people who don't know how to use cameras, but who pick up cameras when the trained camera operator in their house, and here I'm talking about Palestinians under occupation, are out fighting settlers and they have to pick up the camera because they're the only one in the house. So this early, this early generation of of, of eyewitness videography was incredibly rough, was incredibly jerky. Um, image, uh, figures were out of focus, and um, I think we need to pay attention to this. Like we tend to again, we we sort of tend to forget about this early moment of videography, or we tend to sort of remember the the more fine tuned videography of a later of a later uh, era. Um, they, pro- these, these early eyewitness images produce some ch- distinct challenges for activists and for human rights workers. They produce challenges in the legal system. So one of the things I follow is, um, the Israeli NGO Betzelem, which is Israel's oldest and largest, um, nonprofit organization, human rights organization working, um, uh, in the occupied territories, um, gathering testimonials from Palestinians, um, who are under assault from settlers and soldiers. I spent a lot of time chronicling um, the activities of this human rights organization. It's a Jewish Israeli organization with headquarters in West Jerusalem, but has a partnership with Palestinian uh, fa- communities and individuals living under occupation who function as field workers who gather testimonials about human rights incidents, etc. cetera. Um, so one of the things that interests me is how these amateur videos move through judicial arenas in the hands of this human rights organization. The amateur image, to our mind, I think may be, may be a, a very powerful image. You know, Susan Sontag wrote about this. She, she talked about these kinds of images as flying low and said these kinds of amateur images had a kind of greater authenticity. Perhaps, right? But in the judicial arena, in the early years of the Palestinian smartphone witness, this is pre-smartphone, the early years of photographic witnessing, these images produced distinct legal challenges. Imagine, right? uh, uh, So I talk about a case, for example, where a camera, many times cameras are dropped in in, 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 uh, fright, right? So a woman is watching, there's a a woman, uh, a shepherd, who's watching her family be beaten by um, settlers in making an incursion onto her land. Her camera is on. She's capturing the footage Uh, A a club is raised by a settler to strike a blow. The camera is dropped in in fright. We can understand why a camera is dropped in fright, right? When this kind of genre, to use your language, moves into the legal arena and you have a legal system which is already predisposed to disbelieve the Palestinian claimant, the amateur image fails all the more to provide um, evidence of settler wrongdoing. So you have this kind of disconnect between the visual impact of these early images and their legal standing. Um, and that's one of the things I spent, I spend quite a bit of time in this book, um, in the legal system, thinking about again, early years when video videography scenes of, of state violence were just moving into legal arenas in new ways. Um, and when they succeeded and when they failed, and they failed, right? By and large, they failed. And they failed because the legal system is predisposed to disbelieve the Palestinian eyewitness. But there's also some interesting failures which which reside also in the texture of the videography, which, which I'm concerned with.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought it was such a fascinating sort of thread throughout the entire text, is how the photograph itself, like a photograph is just a photograph, but its meaning and its, its political potential, the value um, that people sort of give to it as having a potential to sort of shift things really takes shape within the institutions of the occupation. Right. And, and the shape that it takes really depends on if it's a legal system, the NGO system, um, public opinion, even the Twitter sphere, um, you know, television, like these images sort of travel throughout all of these media. Um, and that media itself gives the image a certain kind of political investment. Right. And, and so, uh, Yeah. Invest it with a certain kind of political hope or failure. Um, Yes,
1: absolutely. So there's no such thing as a, right. There's no such thing as a single, right. I mean, we know this, of course, that one piece of footage can tell multiple stories. Um, I spend a a chapter, I think it's my favorite chapter um, describing the evolution of what I call the repudiation script which is basically, as I said, it sort of predates the Trump-era fake news charge by at least a decade. (laughs) Um, And this is a script that was employed and masterminded by, as I call them, pro-Zionist conspiracy theorists taken up heavily by settlers and settler media outlets. And it's a script that's aimed to solve this problem, which we talked about before, of this growing archive of Palestinian eyewitness video showing scenes of soldier and settler violence against Palestinians. So this is a problem. We talked about the crisis that it raised for the military. It also raises a crisis for settlers and and, and their supporters. And so one of the things that emerges and, and gets honed over these years is a script to repudiate footage, right? The footage comes onto the scene. Maybe it's failing in legal arenas, but we have to make sure it fails. So how do we make sure it fails? We fine tune our script, of repudiation right again this is fake news in 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 a, in a, in an earlier in an earlier stage so um footage that a human rights organization might perceive to be incredibly damning and incredibly powerful strong evidence to mount um a legal charge um uh um, against a, a soldier in a case of soldier violence could be retooled in the hands of repudiators as fake right and so this is a chronicle of how settler communities and their supporters dealt with the challenge of the age of proliferating cameras by developing and, and perfecting the script that, that undoes the veracity of the evidence, basically, that, that charges this, this footage with, with fakery. So, um, yes, the same piece of footage for, you know, a body of footage that human rights workers might say never before has a case has, has a killing of a Palestinian by a soldier been so thoroughly documented. I talk about some of these cases, right? There've never been so many cameras on the scene. There've never been so many angles at which we saw settlers shoot and kill a Palestinians. Never before human rights workers from Bethlehem would tell me we have a lot of assurance that when this case moves into the legal arena, um, that this, that justice will be, you know, we, we, we can, we can pursue this case that there will be a successful, um, uh, prosecution, but when it moves into the legal arena, one of the things that happens is the repudiators and the so-called experts in media manipulation come out and say, it's fake. So again, this is another site of digital learning. Settlers learning to repudiate, human rights workers learning to pull these videos into their toolbox, and human rights workers learning that they have to um, tamper, temper their digital investments. They have to temper their investment in that digital promise because, again, even... A case of a settler killing with multiple cameras, with heavy forensic evidence, often would fail in the legal arena, in the judicial arena.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: I'm glad you brought up that point because it re- it reminds me, you know, one of the other things that the book um, focuses on, really quite sort of ethnographically grounded, really uh, quite detailed and fun to read, is a description about how the, pal- like how um, footage, uh, cam- like video pictures, how uh, taken among Palestinians in the West Bank, how it Travels, right? How it has to go through these multiple sort of moments of being worked upon or being moved from place to place. And so I was hoping you could describe for us a bit about what you call the Palestinian videographic ecosystem.
1: Yeah, sure. Great. Um, um, thank you, Matthew. So one of the chapters is dedicated to this ecosystem. And um, as I've already said, I spent a lot of time in this book talking about the Israeli. Human Rights Organization Betzelem. as I said, it's an Israeli organization based in West Jerusalem. Because we, there's a lot we could say about them, they're still very much alive and well as an NGO, um, and they worked in partnership with Palestinian videographers um, starting in the early 2000s. Um, when you know they were, they sort of were among the first. They were the first NGO in working in Palestine um, to bring cameras actively into the um, into their toolbox. They were the first to really, um, they sort of, uh, they were the first to introduce cameras as tools of eyewitness uh, collection. Um, Afterwards, many would follow suit. But I follow um, the experiences of many of the, or a handful of Palestinians involved in this videographic ecosystem, who were working with Betselem as videographers, um, as caseworkers, as field workers, with their cameras working to document the daily brutalities of living under occupation, the uh, assaults by settlers, the assaults by soldiers. And it was not an easy job. And again, remember, we're talking about early years of this media ecosystem. Um, So I'm talking about around 9, 10, 11, 12, um, at a time when in order for, these Palestinian videographers to deliver their footage back to the West Jerusalem office, they had to actually manually carry it. And we're talking about video cassettes. We're talking about memory sticks, right? These had to be transported hard drives. They had to be physically transported from the West bank into West Jerusalem, where it could either move from there into media spaces. Um, The NGO was also doing an advocacy campaigns to educate Israelis about the occupation. It would either move from there to television, right? Or it would move into legal arenas in cases of um, complaints filed by the NGO um, um, with the military. But how does it get there? Right? So I spent some time just reminding us that these were days before virality could be assured before instantaneous file transfer. Um, And so these, these Palestinian um, videographers and caseworkers um, had to, again, struggle with the challenge of bringing this footage through the highly constrained and militarized landscape of military occupation. And it was not easy. So I talk about all the, all the cases in which people would be stopped at checkpoints in which their video would be, would be confiscated. Um, I talk about the beatings that, that photographers would endure by soldiers often taking aim at cameras. Um, I talk about, um, know what happens when when again cameras are dropped in fear and the footage fails to to sort of materialize in ways in ways anticipated and the message here is basically that let's not forget that there's a pre-life to the viral image right so this is in a way this is a this is a study of of pre-virality right that for palestinians in this early years in the early years of this highly militarized space right of the west bank the early years of the video ecosystem There was a struggle, a basic struggle with even moving the footage through the highly constrained and militarized landscape of occupation where at any time your footage could be seized, your camera could be smashed, right? Um, It could be confiscated. It might never be collected from the police station. So this notion that you film it, you've got it, you've got the evidence, and there it is. There was no such thing. This was a highly constrained ecosystem. I, I spend quite a bit of time with one particular videographer who was actually the first videographer um, to work with the Be- uh, Palestinian videographer from um, the West Bank to work with the Palestinian, w- to work with the Salem with team. And he showed me, uh, we were sitting in his home in, um, in Ramallah one day, and he showed me his office and it was full of videocassettes. He said, these are all the videos I couldn't bring to the West Jerusalem office. It's full of like VHS cassettes. The footage was good. He said the footage was strong, but he never, he couldn't manage to deliver it. So again, this is a story of, again, this kind of, a kind of cautionary tale about our dream of this fantasy that like, well, state violence, you capture it, you've got it, you've got the evidence, it does work, it does political work. You know, even the very movement of the footage was highly constrained
2: by military occupation. Mm-hmm. Now, do you believe that Palestinian cameras have the potential to challenge Israel's military occupation? Um, I do.
1: I do, but I think, but I want us to be cautious um, about um, about our story about that. Um, I think again, this is a this whole book is kind of a cautionary tale about our investment in the emancipatory potential of the, the viral image, and maybe we'll get back to that when we talk about twenty twenty one, because we hear th- this story about the kind of um, radicalizing potential of eyewitness footage is very much alive and well right now. And this book is a bit of a cautious reminder that we should um, be thoughtful before we invest too much in that story. So I think maybe we'll come back to that.
2: Okay. Now, um, just to, it, in the early chapters of the book, you get a lot of insight about the is um, the side of the Israeli military and how things were working internally from. Uh, uh, Former soldiers, and you focus a lot on the daily experience of a few Israeli military spokespersons. So I'm curious, why spend that much time on their personal stories? What's the intervention here?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um, this was a book that has a there's a there's a there's a long backstory which we probably won't get into here. Which is that how is it possible to do field work? I mean, it was barely field work; it was mostly interviews. But how is it possible to have access to these? military spokesmen's, spokespersons, spokespersons that's a story that i can only tell in part here but um it was difficult <laughs> and um and often i i didn't have the access that i i wanted for obvious political reasons but um um w- why spend so much time i think part of it is you know this is a my my story of the military there's many different storylines here about the military but one of them is this struggle to come up to digital speed, this perpetual struggle. Again, you've got this menacing growth of this Palestinian archive of state violence. It's bad news for the military, right? They're going to read it as a Hezbollah, a propaganda problem. It's bad news. They're struggling to come up to digital speed. I th- part of, I spent a lot of time with, uh, you know, um, describing the, the experiences of these spokespersons, um, including, um, I spent some time talking about um, a visit I paid in 2011 to the social media team of the military. This was very early days for their team. Now we think of them as producing all this flashy content. These were early days. They were still figuring out how to use these tools. They'd had a few successes with the during the uh, Gaza incursion of 2008-2009. Um, Operation Cast Lead, the military started a YouTube channel. They considered it very successful. So 2011, they were getting their team they were growing their team. They were trying to figure out how do we produce content that the world wants to see? How do we deliver the military story? But it was very halted. There, was some, there were errors all the time. They couldn't figure out, what do you do with all the detractors? They were about to launch Facebook, but they had a problem. How do we program our wall? They were watching the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have problems with their wall. Why? The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel didn't have a large staff. They The wall would be populated by negative content and the when after hours, the, the staff got off at five, the wall would be populated with negative content. The staff would go in in the morning, clean it up. That was how rudimentary the, the experience was. The military thought, we don't have the staff. How are we going to clean up the wall? So they were, they were trying to figure out how do we pull social media into a military institution, given our resources? How do we square the difference between the highly vernacular style of social media with, with the formality of the military institution. And there were a lot of mistakes and they, so I spent time, I spent time, um, let's say lingering in the, in the improvisation of the military at that moment. Um, I spend time, um, meditating on military mistakes and errors and everything from something small like the, the camera didn't turn on to, um, to failures at a, at a larger scale, like the helicopter wasn't available to bring footage from sea to land during a military operation. I I I'd spend time here to try to, I think speak back a little bit to this kind of supremacy of this startup nation narrative, um, which has been very successful. The startup nation narrative talks about, you know, Israeli technological supremacy. And um, you know, I, I I've written a lot about the, this, the, the fabric of this narrative, but in a way I think the anti-occupation, the, um, left has, has in a way taken the narrative a little too seriously, right? The technological supremacy may be in some arenas, but in, in the arena, in the arena of of digital media, this was a, this there was a lot of trial and error. There were a lot of mistakes made as the military tried to manage the problem of the damning archive of Palestinian footage. So to me, this is a speak back to that, to the, to the ostensible supremacy of, of the, of, of Israel, where technology is concerned Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want that Hezbollah narrative to have the final word
2: here. Um, I mean, as an aside, and this can totally be edited out, but um, it's sort of interesting, the the Startup Nation idea, because even, you know, most recently, at least in the US, with the Free Britney movement, you know, that Startup Nation idea has been vilified through Free Britney because it came out that she was, her dad was surveying her conversations through Israeli spyware technology, right? And so suddenly mm-hmm, you have all mm-hmm. these people who, it's another sort of, Um, aspect to the, to trying to take down that narrative of, uh, of the startup nation, or at least complicate it and show that the startup is the, the the narrative of technology is very much intertwined with militarization. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I wish I could, I wish I was an expert on Britney Spears. I'll let, I'll let you do that. So I can't really comment on that.
2: I mean, I'm not either. I just, um, you know, see the headlines and. uh, Right. uh, Yeah. Anyway, I'm, you know, I want, wonder- but I do want to say that that, that this storyline, this the Startup Nation storyline, is really at the
1: core of both of the both of the last two books that I've done, and it's this it's this remarkably um, formulaic storyline, which is a storyline generated really to produce. Um, an alternative narrative by by the by the israeli state to the problem again here's that proxy narrative i talked about earlier the problem of the israeli occupation like why is the world talking about israeli occupation we want them to talk about israeli culture we want them to talk about israeli digital prowess um etc so this the startup nation narrative was sort of the most successful of the israeli state efforts to rebrand itself and thus draw international eyes away from the ostent, the quote problem of military occupation. It's been a very successful storyline, um, and again, part of this book's uh, investment in the faltering efforts of the military
2: is again an attempt to um, to dismantle that success. Um, great. I just so I want to move on. I want to move our conversation more toward thinking about the. Sort of the continuation of this story, right beyond the events of the book and sort of more uh, recent events. Um, but I just want to end by also stating that you know th- this book is also a, just a an excellent intervention into the anthropology of technology because it really it really shows an, how at the end of the day technology is not this thing that sort of swoops into our lives and sort of changes it, but that there's an entire process, a very complicated social process by which. Um, technologies are integrated into certain kinds of contexts and it is it's still about how humans use these technologies to sort of Mm -hmm. invest them with aspects of hope and utopian promise and try to problematize Mm -hmm. um, or not problematize try to sort of solve the problems of technology toward that utopian promise um and i think that can be broadly stated for many different kinds of contexts yeah Mm -hmm.
1: You know, that was that's that's definitely the aim here. And again, I think um, in the Israel in the case of the scholarship, um, and I say this in the book. There's there's been in the last decade a growing scholarship in Israel and Palestinian you know, anti colonial studies about uh, visual regimes. Um, but they tend to be focused chiefly on questions of representational practices. And this is a book that's really interested in the pre-representational. I mean, I do it, I am interested in the fabric of videos and all that, but it's what happens before the image? what What enables yeah. the image? What about images that weren't captured? Yeah. What about footage that couldn't be transferred because of a closure or a checkpoint? so it's it's really lingering in those moments before images even materialize as images, investments in cameras, attempts to navigate, the, the disconnect between media desires and occupation occupied infrastructures. Um, and I hear, I take my cue from a number of anthropologists working on, on these questions who've been really helpful in shifting this conversation in ways you propose to the social life of technologies. Yeah, yeah. So this is very much a study of the social life of those technologies.
2: Yeah. Okay. Now the war between Hamas and Israel in May, 2021 really shifted international public opinion where Palestine was concerned. Uh, and many analysts have credited Palestinian social media usage, in particular the viral videos shared by activists in Gaza and uh, Jerusalem. How does your book help us think about this?
1: Yeah, I, I've, I've like many um, m- many folks who are invested in um, in Palestine. We all watched um, this this war unfold. I, I unfortunately was here and rather than there, um, watching this unfold. And yes, this was a very, very. This has been a very common assessment um, um, that you know um, the success of the uh, protest movements in Palestine and internationally were very much due to um, a new kind of moment in uh, social media activism. So this is this is this is both true and a common storyline that there's never before has there been so much footage produced from the ground in Jerusalem and Gaza. Right, that's a fact. Um, and this footage had an incredibly powerful mobilizing effect. It did, this was a radical sea change for, um, Palestine organizing across the world. Um, and again, part of the, part of the way we understand this is that there's this, the Israeli incursion, the Israeli bombardment of Gaza was, um, heavily documented by Gazans, right? In the very midst of their bombardment, they were shooting images, the pro, the, 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 um, uh activism in Jerusalem was heavily documented by activists we've all we're all familiar I, I assume with these with these videos um we, we've we've seen them they had incredible viral capacity um and uh, it brought a whole new set of activists Palestinian activists into the international spotlight onto mainstream media all of that is true but i think what concerns me a little bit is the extent to which in our story of the reckoning with the sea change in um in solidarity politics around Palestine, what concerns me in the reckoning with, with, um, um, among solidarity activists is the extent to which we're placing our optimism at the feet of these new technologies. Now, I'm, I'm sort of rendering this narrative a little bit singular because that's not the only story that activists are telling, but you see over and over again a crediting of, with, uh, with this, this sea change um, in solidarity politics. The credit is often put at the feet of these media ecosystems. I know. Unfortunately, we see that this is a kind of familiar, a kind of familiar hope, right? This hope that only it's, it has a kind of only now structure. The, the narrative of hope. It's like only now that we can see Gaza assaulted in real time. Can can only now can we um, can we mobilize in these numbers? Finally, now that the images from Gaza are being shot in real time, closer than ever before, with more cameras. Finally, then justice is more available to us. And I I just worry about this narrative because it's very, very old, right? It's arguably as old as cameras themselves. This this investment in the camera's capacity, the capacity of new cameras with greater capacity to deliver new forms of justice. This is a very old storyline. Susan Sontag's written heavily about that. Many others have. And as old as that storyline is the lament that follows when the camera fails to deliver on its promise, right? So we've seen this in Syria, right? The first YouTube revolution, Um, um, we, we watched the lament that followed when that YouTube revolution failed to stop the violence in Syria, failed to save Syrians, right, from the bombardment by the regime. So I worry that as much as we can be optimistic about this current moment in Palestinian activism globally, let's be careful of the story that we tell about technology. We want to tell a more complicated story, mindful that we have to keep the activism going, after the spectacular image fades from view. That's our mandate, right, Um, for activists working around Palestine. We cannot lay our hope at the feet of the viral image. That is a hope which has historically failed to materialize.
2: So I hadn't, to be honest, I hadn't made that connection. And even as you're speaking, thinking about my own experience with the May two thousand twenty-one war and watching it unfold through social media, right? But watching the narratives around people who were posting as either like why and the frustration that like here is the blatant evidence, right? Here are here's right. the documentation. Here are the videos. How are we not? you know rallying as a global community how are people do you know so there's this sense of like here's the documentation why are we not responding um, commensurate with and it as I'm sort of as as you were talking and as I'm thinking it applying what I read from the book to that moment it's like it does really complicate for me that narrative of what as well uh, and show something, something a little bit deeper in that sort of, that, that virality uh, of these images through social media.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that, I, I like the way you say it, here is the image. Um, and, and so the here is the image and all the hopes that are attached to here is the image, here is the evidence, right? Now we see it, right? We've never before seen it with this clarity. We've never before seen it in real time. So that structure of hope As I said, it has a long history outside of Palestine, but it has a long history in Palestine. This book is kind of a chronicle of that structure of hope as attached to photographic technologies. And it's also a chronicle of how that breaks down. Right. So human rights workers had that same storyline. Finally, we can watch the state shoot to kill in real time or something close to it. We've got it at multiple angles now. Right. um, Judicial action will follow now Jewish-Israeli publics will finally confront the brutality of their military occupation. That hope uh, didn't pan mm-hmm. out, right? Neither in the legal arena nor in the public arena. So I, I, again, this is not to say that I do not, I'm not also excited and, and unheartened by this moment and this shift in um, Palestine um, solidarity politics globally. But again, that particular structure of hope, here is the image, as you put yeah. it, Yeah. Um I think my book shows we have to be very cautious before we make that investment.
2: Yeah. And in some ways it's a hope that's repeated through different like earlier iterations of these these you know photographic evidence where we we take a new kind of picture, we invest it with hope, but then nothing sort of comes of it, but then a new kind of picture that emerges with new technology and we think okay this is now the moment this is the clarity of the image and then nothing comes of it right. and then we're back at like a new iteration of the image through a new kind of technology or advanced technology yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely um, right so if you were writing the book now with everything that's happened within the current media landscape um, in Israel and Palestine how would it be different?
1: I think in ways I've just suggested, I mean, I think it's what's remarkable is the recalcitrance of these narratives, I think, in ways that we've just rehearsed. Um, And this this is a kind of story about recalcitrant hope as invested in new technologies. And as you say, it's a very flexible hope. It's a very flexible hope. It can be kind of updated as the new technology arrives on the scene. There's a kind of dream. It's like, oh, well, now... That we're closer now that the image is clear now that it's a satellite image right now that we can retool surveillance footage and pull it into the human rights toolbox think about the work of forensic architecture i i think their work is incredibly powerful i also think it's invested with this techno utopianism um right we can, now that we can see from on high now that we have this incredible array of images now that we've crowd we've crowdsourced the evidence um so i think um this, this book may be a story of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, I hope not in terms of um, the political landscape in Palestine. But again, the the repetitive nature of this investment is quite interesting
2: um, to me. No. Yeah. So just one final question then. Um, who do you think should read this book but likely won't?
1: Oh, yes. Um, my mother? No. No. <laughs> um, This book, I've tried, it took me a long time to write this book or longer than I would have liked. Um, And that was partially because I really tried to make it a clear read. It's very much informed by theory, but theory lives in the footnotes. Um, I'm trying to make this book accessible to broad publics, both in academia and outside, to people interested in Israel-Palestine who might not pick up an academic book. It turns out we're not taught to write that way. So writing that way Making one sentence is shorter takes a long time, I learned. So I'm really hoping, um, I'm really hoping this book has some crossover potential. I was really thrilled that Ben Ehrenreich, who wrote uh, The Way to the Spring, blurbed it because, you know, he's got a he's got a popular book. I'll never have his reach, obviously. But it, it is my it is my hope that it can be a book that moves between readers and readerly spaces. Um that's my ambition. Right.
2: I mean, on a personal note, I um, I really enjoyed the 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 style and the tone and the language of the of the text. I really liked the the details you that you provide. It constructs a wonderful narrative, uh, and not just a narrative, but even. From somebody who sort of is still trying to figure out in many ways what anthropology is and what ethnography is meant to do in the world, I think this is a great example of how to take that rich amount of detail and put it all together into something that can have a a wide significance across multiple kinds of scales in a lot of people's everyday lives. So I think that, I think that you hit the mark with the writing. And so I hope that other people um, will enjoy that sort of narrative flow that you've invested, like imbued in the text.
1: Lovely. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that.
2: Do you have any final comments? Any final words?
1: Um, any final words? Yeah. Um... Just that this was really a pleasure, Matthew. Thank you for taking the time. Um, I really appreciate it. I enjoy talking about it. Um, I enjoy engaging listeners. Listeners out there, if you have any questions for me, send me an email. I always talking to readers is what it's all about.
2: The pleasure was all mine. I have um, a new appreciation for the text after the after the conversation. I think. It, it's always worthwhile to hear with the author how the author interprets their own text to really understand the significance and the meaning of it. So it was a it was a, a pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Thank you so much.